This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Thanks for joining us today on the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. We are very pleased to welcome on Charles Carrillo with Harborside Capital Partners on a bit of a market update in the regards of residential real estate, but focusing on multifamily real estate. So make sure you stick around for that. Today on the download, debt limit talks have stalled once again in Washington as we near a historic impasse that could possibly see the U.S. default on its bond payments for the first time in modern history, spelling potential disaster for U.S. and some global financial markets. So hopefully we can see the Democrats and Republicans come to some type of agreement for this debt limit ceiling increase that will obviously certainly help us to uh, continue to pay our debt. So something very keen to watch out on in the coming weeks as we near the end of our current spending bill that would see us default on these payments. Ron DeSantis is expected to announce his official bid for U.S. presidency on a live broadcast with Twitter co- on Twitter, co-hosted by none other than eccentric tech billionaire Elon Musk. So while it has been rumored for the better part of the past three to four months that Ron DeSantis will run for president, he officially will probably be announcing that on this Wednesday, May 24th, and it will definitely be something to watch. This also has far-reaching implications for his home state of Florida, as there are restrictions on holding a publicly elected office and running for a federally elected office at the same time. So we might have to see him resign his governancy uh, in the state of Florida in order to be able to fully run for U.S. president. So it'll be something keen to watch later on on May 24th on Wednesday. And lastly, on the download, Universal Group Music has announced a partnership with AI developer Indel out of Germany to compose certain types of music centered on relaxation and and meditative background tracks. So (laughs) AI certainly moving into a lot of different facets of everyday life and now moving into the music industry. So hopefully this won't have too much of an adverse effect on artists, but it is certainly well within the realm of possibility that artists are going to be up in arms with AI kind of encroaching on their creative ability to make music. So definitely something to watch. This has been The Download. Today on the what is, what is deficit spending? In the simplest terms, deficit spending is when a government expenditures exceed its revenues during a fiscal period, causing it to run into a budget deficit. This phrase, deficit spending, often implies a Keynesian approach to economic stimulus in which a government takes on debt while using its spending power to increase demand and stimulate the economy. This is especially important to understand right now as the government is reaching an impasse on its debt limit spending and its ability to pay debts and stimulate the economy. So certainly something to understand, especially in these times. This is Deficit Spending, and this has been The What Is. Welcome to this edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Today, we're very pleased to welcome on Charles Carrillo with Harborside Partners. We're going to 
be getting into some interesting facets of kind of a state of the market between single family and multifamily. Now we've you know certainly covered the benefits of multifamily investing, but some changing market conditions are really going to illustrate why multifamily you know might be a good thing for you right now versus single family and some of the differences uh, between the two, and especially because everyone's been hearing about market uh, with rate increases and all sorts of different stuff, inventory levels. What does this all mean for you? So we're going to dig into that today, Charles. Really pleased to have you on today. Give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of what Harborside Partners does, and then we'll really dig into the topic at hand. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Alex. Uh, so I am a multifamily investor since uh, 2006, and I'm originally from Connecticut. I grew up in the multifamily investing business. My dad uh, bought his first multifamily property in 1984, a six-family. So he self-managed it, and he got, at some point, with one of his partners up to almost 100 units. And it was uh, you know six to 12-unit apartment complexes, some mixed use, so when you have retail on the bottom and apartments above it. And then uh, when I started buying properties, I was buying properties uh, like three units and uh, three unit properties up that were very common in central Connecticut. And then also some mixed use properties as well. And um, buying those from 06 to like 2010. And then I moved to Florida in 2012 and I had professional management take care of that. And since being in Florida, we've really focused on over the last, I would say, several years, really focused on um, syndications and buying larger properties. So when I'm saying syndications, just working with passive investors um, and purchasing larger apartment complexes, um, mainly throughout Florida, Georgia, and Texas. Okay. When you say larger, are you talking, you know, 200 unit pluses, you know, what kind of grade range are these, you know, mm -hmm. be with value add, what kind of stuff are you really focusing on there? So we've... Uh, Really, uh, our first two syndications were under 100 units, a 59 uh, that we sold last year, and then also a 90, which we're selling right now. And since then, we've been 100 plus units. That's really the threshold for us. We Our last one was 536 units, um, which was massive, the largest one we've ever done. But I would say typically there's there 100, uh, the one before that was 157 units. So it's really in that ballpark of if it's 100 plus, we have that economies of scale. And uh, it really makes sense for us to uh, all the numbers can kind of work out with however management works. So that's okay. what I would say. And great at, to answer your question on the class stuff. I would say class, we are really looking at um, over the last two years, we've really changed our focus from including C to really focusing on B minus and above areas and uh, properties that are built to uh, 1980 or after, really 1985 and after. Gotcha. Yeah. And I don't imagine there's really a whole lot of the, you know, 100, 150 unit plus stuff that's really much older than that. Um, is there? I mean, I would imagine most of that stuff has probably either been heavily renovated or kind of torn down and rebuilt. Is there much in the marketplace for stuff that's older than 85 in that? You'll have some stuff that comes across, not in, not, not let's say in B minus and above, you know what I mean? B class, you're not going to find it. You will find it in C and you'll find, um, you know, in the Southeast, uh, especially like Florida, you'll find like a lot of stuff that's uh, in the 60s and 70s built. Which is, but it's, you know, you right there, you have a lot of functional obsolescence with those properties where just stuff, you're just not going to be able to get the top rents. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's certain things like not having central air or um, a, a weird configuration um, with, uh, you know, layout in the apartment. You know what I mean? You're just, you're not going to be able to get that into a real b-class property at that point the area could be fine and that works well it's just we just won't go into anything really into that age um properties it's just that uh 
a lot of when you're buying stuff like that, a lot of the bones haven't been really touched, which means for large bills coming up. And it's really just uh, a lot of interior renovations have been done. So when you're going into it, you start finding out that a lot of mechanicals haven't been touched and roofs are coming up and stuff like this. So that's kind of what we're avoiding. And also it's um, the main things with staying 1980s and above is really you're avoiding you know, asbestos, you're really avoiding uh, lead paint, 1978. And before uh, you're avoiding aluminum wiring, you're avoiding like stab lock, uh, electrical panels. So those are other, those are like the main ones. You know what I mean? I don't have a problem per se going into those older properties, but it's really, if the area is a true B, and, um, you know, a lot of those items I just mentioned have been uh, remediated, then it's something different. But most of the time it hasn't. Yeah, I can imagine the expense for a lot of people going in there. It's like, you know, what's really the the value add for trying to reposition this? You know, I, I come in and get it, you know, you get it at the, the great price, but then, yeah. you know, you're going to put all this money, time and effort into it to really what's your appreciable gain going to be? If you can only really, you know, the, the area can really only support, let's say, a B plus at the top end. It's not really made for the A plus type community you know, where's really the value. And so I could see that. It's just, uh, I always like to ask the question when people say, hey, we have a particular market and we don't go past that. And I always like to ask why, because, you know, answers vary widely. Some people just say, hey, we have, we don't have experience in doing that. Some people like, hey, this is exactly why we stay away from it. And I think for investors to also understand why a particular, you know, syndicator might want to do that versus not is always important because if you're going to be entrusting someone with your capital, it's important to know why they've chosen the direction that they go in. So, uh, you know, good question to answer, but you know, we could, I'm sure we could opine on that for a while, but let's kind of get into, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about today, which was more of a, uh, you know, a status of the market when it comes to, you know, what's going on in the multifamily space uh, as it relates to, you know, single family, because there is a lot of bleed over, like we were talking about before, you know, some of the things that might be bad for certain parts of this, you know, rising interest rates makes your purchases and refinances harder. So maybe some of the repositioning down the road, but at the same time, it might also help, you know, with increasing prices and the, you know, decrease in the velocity of money with way that people can find financing for single family creates more renters. So now they're looking for more apartments. They're looking to transition into a different class of property. So while things might be getting harder, you might also see some benefits in, in other aspects. So I know you took some notes, so let's kind of go through that and see, you know, what you're seeing and, you know, where the benefits and where the problems lie in the market currently. Yeah. So our firm does a weekly newsletter and I usually work uh, with one other person to kind of prepare a lot of the stories and things that I feel are important for on um, like on Monday and we put it out on Wednesday. So I was just uh, taking a couple notes for the show and the important thing, like you were saying exactly about the bleed over between multifamily and single family, and it becomes even more important when the investors are investing into B and A multifamily, because you're going to have a, a closer, uh, uh, you know, a closer resemblance of a mortgage payment versus rent payment. So it's going to make it easier for people to make that switch. And then also what we call is we call them credit tenants. They actually have credit. They have long-term jobs, all this kind of stuff that goes with buying a house that banks want to see. So that is, if you're in C-class, it's not going to be, you know, the factors I send out here are probably going to be, they're important, but they're probably not going to be something you're going to be watching every week. You know what I mean? Because most of your tenants are probably not going to be, or not in the market for buying a house anytime soon. Um, so it's, uh, really what we've seen over the last year is so over the 12, last 12 months from April, 2023, April, 2022, uh, home sales are down 26%. You know, we have pending home sales that are down 
15%, new listings are down 24%. But the main thing here is that there's only really four metros, um, and this is all with Redfin, um, really four major metros where it's cheaper to buy than rent. And it's Detroit, Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Houston. So that's a very important metric to have if you own properties or you're looking at buying properties in that area because people making that switch um, to renting from or to owning from renting, um, they're going to see typically home costs an average of 25% more currently right now to own than rent. And that's a huge jump for people, right? Someone's paying $2,000. Now they have to pay $2,500. And obviously everybody that's ever owned a house, they know that uh, that payment is just your minimum of what you'll be paying every month when you have problems. And as we were talking about Alex um, with you, but uh, so a drop in, you know, <laughs> so a drop in mortgage rates, even if they drop them right now, um, Freddie Max, I think on average uh, over the last week or so, is like 6.33 is like the average rate that they had over the, that they saw. And so you have some people getting 15 years and some people getting 30 years. So that's where you have that because the 30, the 30 year is up closer to seven. And um, with that being said, what you have is that even if mortgage rates drop to 5%, it's still going to be 10% more expensive to own and rent. And so it's it's really important that when people are going in, these are gonna what what this means is that there's been a lot of talk about rent decrease these uh, over the you know 2023, and not that we've really seen that with our properties. Uh, we've read about it in markets. I imagine everybody's read about it in markets. But the thing though is with these facts, it's going to show that you have a lot of tenants that were looking to rent for a shorter period of time are now going to be there for a longer period of time. And it's all those different facts put together. So that's a very, I, that's something that I see that maybe 2023, where we are now, we're going to see, we're going to see people staying put. We're going to see rents closer to zero on increases in many markets. Um, maybe you'll see some that are slight decreases, but you're going to see, I think in 2024, we're going to start seeing that continue again with an increase. Uh, nowhere near what we were seeing in you know, 20, 21, 22. But I think that um, it's a very solid place being in multifamily, especially now that we have, um, you know, because the real money is made when you're owning multifamily is keeping people in there longer. So just bring keeping someone, even if they're paying the same amount of rent and you keep them for one more year, um, the, uh, you know, not losing any rent, um, not having any vacancies, not having to make ready that unit. Um, that's a lot of goes right to the bottom line, a lot of money that goes right to the bottom line for investors. Yeah. Now, what I'd be curious to know is that what, and maybe this isn't something that you know off the top of your head, but what's kind of, I would wonder what would be like the average year over year rent rate increase you would need to have to operate effectively and profitable in a market for a market that's more geared towards um, you know, less retention of those long-term tenants, let's say, you know, an average, you know, let's just say, a, a, you know, a lease average of, let's say, 18 months, you know, take the people that say for two years, some people break after a year, month to month. Um, so, you know, maybe not people that are saying, you know, 24 months plus, I would imagine would probably be at like an, an average for people that are more in the long-term realm. Um, you know, what kind of rate increases do you need to see to have that turnover, you know, of having to process that turnover versus, you know, maybe a slight, you know, a less, you know, or maybe approaching a zero rate increase, but having those longer term tenants, what would you, do you really kind of know what a, you know, a general market factor that might support that would be, um, you know, is it 10% year over year rate increases at five? Uh, what are the, what's the, the economics of that look like when you have changing uh, appetites for staying longer in properties? 
Well, number one, it really it depends on the property that you have. So we're talking multifamily, we're talking B-class properties. These are rather either easy units to rent. Um, they're not going to be like a class A, which you might have um, longer vacancies. And it's not like a single family house where you might even have a longer vacancy where you're trying to find that really good tenant that's going to pay you $3,500 a month. Um, it's really going to be something that, you know, if you have someone that's, uh, if you have your apartment vacant or a unit vacant for uh, one month a year, that's like 8% off the top, right? And then you have everything else that goes with it. Um, you know, you're going to be taking care of electricity on that unit. You're going to be taking care of any other utilities that are there that you're required to have to rent the apartment. Um, and then also what's going to happen is that um, you, you know, you have to do what the make ready, right? You have to at least clean it, sometimes paint it. Um, and, you know, right there, that's several hundred dollars. You know what I mean? At most parts, you're going in there making little repairs, fixing stuff that's uh, that's come up during the last tenancy. So I would think like, you know, when you're, if you're able just to keep them one more year, right? Um, if now you can, you're still going to have that month of vacancy, right? So now it's going to take down the 4%, right? Um, of your rent money over those two years is going to be now uh, gone. Um, but now you're still going to be probably paying the same amount for cleaning, re you know, whatever it is, repairing, uh, maybe a little bit more. But the main thing, though, is that you're you're only losing it for the same amount of time. And that's the huge thing. So if you can keep people in there just a little longer, and then even if you're re-signing people um, that are just going to be a, a six-month lease, right, and you're signing them a little higher because they are ready to make that move to buying a house and they don't want to sign on for the whole thing, or if they're going to go into a more month to month, I mean, that's also where you can increase rents. You know what I mean? Where people will pay a premium to be able to be let out of their lease uh, within 30 days and not have to pay some sort of, you know, some termination fee. Yeah, no. And and that's kind of, you know, I would imagine a little bit easier for the market to, you know, to, to stomach at least when it comes to, you know, rate increases. I, I would say that it's, uh, you know, you can potentially get a lot more, uh, you know, revenue from something like that, where you have an impetus on the, you know, the person paying you for that, you know, that that flexibility as opposed to saying, okay, well, now we have a vacancy, now we have to increase rents based on a market instead of the need of the person that's actually utilizing the property. Right. And also probably a little bit easier to peg down than saying, okay, now we have vacancy, and we just need, you know, we had someone in there for a year, because they're transitioning back into the buying. I think you would have a little bit of an easier time pegging rents, although maybe the you know, increase isn't as much when you have the more longer term stable tenants, but you don't have those turnover costs. So, right. you know, from your perspective, you know, it's probably a little bit harder and you maybe can increase stuff, but would you say in general, it's probably about the same amount of money, but it's a little bit easier to make when you have the longer term tenants without having to do with this rate increases, which one would you say appreciably makes more money mm -hmm. or is it kind of an even wash in the end? It's just easier to do one versus the other. Well, if you have tenants that have been in there for 12 months, uh, months and you are like, say, for instance, you're buying a property and you're doing a lease audit. So that means we're reviewing leases of the current tenants in there. And we see tenants that have been there. Um, they're paying. They've been in there for 12, 18 months plus. I mean, this is that's great. I mean, they've re-signed on and they're with it. That shows how um, how solid this tenant is, how you know, this is a very low risk tenant. You know what I mean? In most situations when you're grading that lease. You're going to see someone that came in that maybe has questionable background, tenant, um, you know, work history, whatever it might be, and they're there for three months. That's going to be a much riskier for that landlord, right? When they're taking over that property. But um, you know, if you're, you'll see a lot of people that purchase properties and they're like, oh well, it's fifteen percent, you know, below rent or something like this. They'll say, 
Well, you're, you know, if they're good tenants, you're not going to want to raise it 15%, even if you could, you know what I mean? Um, because it's, it's an agreement between you and the tenant. And I mean, the goal is to, there's, a, there's a fine line between uh, keeping tenants in there, right? Keeping the occupancy up. And mostly when we're doing value add multifamily, the whole goal of it is to renovate units. And you're going to be doing work exterior that can be done at any point, right? Right. When you buy it, you don't need to get into units per se, but when you're doing interior renovations, which is really where the rent increases are happen, let's say, right? Um, you know, you have to get into those units, you have to do it. So there's a fine, there's there's a way of when you're buying it um, or when you start managing it, it's going to be something that um, you want to make sure that uh, how many units that your general contractor can do. And then you're on the other hand, you're figuring out exactly, uh, you know, how many, how many, you know, vacant units do we have coming up? while still keeping occupancy rather high, right? You know, hopefully 88% plus. And that way that you have cash flow coming in, all your expenses, and you're still, you know, you're still netting money every month that you can send out to investors, but you still already have um, when tenants, you know, when units turn, you have it, but you don't want to have too many units vacant. So it's the thing is when you have good tenants coming up, it's it's really, you know, you're keeping all these plates moving. But the real thing is that um, you want to make sure that, uh, Good tenants are staying and you kind of have an idea from when you're buying a property, which ones probably won't be the best. And you have an idea of, and that helps you with your pre preparation of how much money you have to put aside, but uh, because you're going to have more vacancies coming up, you might have eviction costs. Um, so these are kind of things of doing the lease audit part of it, but it's really, I would do, you know, if you want to, somebody buys and like, oh, I'm going to get up to that 15% increase that I don't have right now when I purchased the property. Um, you know, I would say, you know, go three, 5%, keeping these tenants in there that are actually paying rent, whatever it might be for your market. And they might stay another year, they might stay another three years, right? But keeping, you know, keeping tenants in there, most tenants aren't going to really stay if you're doing 10, 15% increases, right? Um, it's happened to me before as a, being a tenant, someone, they try to raise rent like 15%, you know what I mean? And it's just like, in that situation, you're like, well, you can move out or you can, you know, you can try to negotiate down. So it's not a great, it doesn't leave a great taste in the mouth for tenants because if that happens one year, what do you think they're going to do the next year? So if you got through it like this year and you're able to negotiate down, they're probably not coming back again for your, you know, these, these crazy rent increases that you're doing. So it's really figuring out which tenants you want to keep and the best tenants are the ones that you're going to give the best deal to. And um, that's kind of how it works when we're going through it to make sure that uh, we're able to do all the business plan. Yeah. So is it, yeah, it kind of, it kind of boils down to is that, you know, either direction can work. It's just, you know, one's a little bit tougher, one's a little bit easier, but you probably still end up making, you know, roughly the same. It's just a matter of, you know, you're kind of your throughput, you know, how much effort did you have to make into that? So, you know, buying the one that needs more work might be a better deal, but there's more work that goes into making the same money as opposed to the easier deal that, uh, you know, might, uh, might not make as much money, but when you balance it all in the end, it kind of works. So, you know, that's kind of a good look for the the comparison of, you know, why people are being driven into renting. And again, it's not a terribly complex thing for people to understand is that prices of properties continue to stay high. Um, you know, the sales have gone down, but also inventory is relatively low. People are staying, they're not selling because, you know, a good example is, you know, where I live in St. Pete, granted my house that my wife and I bought back in 2016 has done exceptionally well in its value, but if we sell and pull our equity out, great. We can't really buy anything appreciably nicer. Well, well great. We also really enjoy where we live, but, um, 
you know, as people are kind of kind of getting into that and people that want to buy, one, money is expensive. Two, homes are very expensive and there's not a whole lot of them out there. So what do they do? Well, if you want to live somewhere nice and sunny like St. Pete, you rent an apartment. Um, you know, there's a lot more of those out there and it's easier to get into. So we kind of see, you know, why people are doing it. And again, not too terribly complex for people to wrap their head around. But now let's transition into digging into some more parts of multifamily because, you know, not only does that make it a maybe a more favorable market for getting the renters in, especially for the class of property that you want, because like you said, uh, the people that need the C and below properties are always going to need them. Um, you know, they're not necessarily on a track to buy a home. The B, um, you know, to the A plus properties are people that could probably afford a home at, you know, maybe not at these crazy times, but you know, and generally that is an option for them. They're just electing this option right now. So we've kind of identified the core focus of where these markets are. We've identified, okay, great. These are why this is a good area to be in. But from the syndicator side, that's what I'd be kind of curious to know, because just like single family is getting expensive and money is certainly getting more expensive, that also plays into the investment role. It's easy enough to say, hey, you know, we like these classes of properties because like you said, you know, there's no lead paint, the wiring's done, the house, you know, the roofs aren't peeling off of the uh, the substrate, but at the same time, everything's getting more expensive. So what are some things that you're seeing as far as one, what's the state of the market look like for multifamily right now? I'm obviously focusing on the B and above properties that you like and 85 plus, uh, 1985 built uh, and newer, um, you know, what does that kind of look like? How is that changing any positioning? You know, were you doing kind of the more traditional, like, you know, five-year refi sell plan that a lot of syndicators were doing? Um, were you ever doing that or things changing? I think you kind of know where I'm going yeah. with the question that I'm getting at. So let's kind of lead into that and let's dig into some of the state of the market of the multifamily uh, acquisition and reposition world that you work in. Yeah, we've definitely seen cap rates rise and uh, it's, it's, you know, than purchasing in 2021. But it is something that uh, most deals we've seen really over in the beginning of 2023, I, I, you know, you're looking at cap rates and some of them are very compressed still. Okay, mm -hmm. I mean, we're selling a property right now in Tampa. It's a C-class property at a four cap. Wow. And so it is, that person is, uh, you know, definitely with, and our debt on that property because we bought it in 2020 is like 4.05. Right. So their debt is definitely higher than that. Right. So it's something that they see a tremendous, uh, they own a lot of units and properties in the area. So they have a really great scale of economy with property management. So they might have be have a different mindset and they don't have a problem overpaying for it um, to make sure that they get more scale in that area, which is different from most buyers. But in that scenario, so you're still seeing compressed cap rates. We are seeing a little expansion on it, but it's it's not much, especially in hot markets where people want to be, which is uh, you know many markets in the southeast uh, all throughout the United States. So it's just it's um, that's that's kind of exactly what's been happening. But going on with like the the debt thing is we have a lot of people that have purchased you know years back and they got rate increases or they got rate caps um, interest rate caps on when they purchase, which means that they're able to put a ceiling on their floating rate debt, their variable debt for a certain part of time, right? Which might be, usually it's two years. Three-year caps are very expensive. So most people put it two years if they got one at all. But we now see that uh, we're coming up in the next six, 12 months, we're going to be going up and now uh, those rate caps are now going to be expiring. So really 
we're going to see a lot of properties that are going to have to renegotiate with the with their lender. They're going to have to refinance into debt that's a little bit more expensive because that floating rate, when it goes back to the full rate, it's going to be a lot more expensive than what they could do if they could just get fixed rate, maybe five or 10-year agency lending right from Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. Um, I've heard some people in masterminds tell me that they're doing HUD. You know what I mean? They're refinancing into a HUD product, which goes out usually 40 years, right? Which will give you even more breathing room. But it's another government program that has a lot of, keeps your hands tied pretty well, but they're, you know, they're still going to be making, making money on the property. So it just depends on where people, how people are financing it. Um, you know, we financed before, I mean, people over the last last year or so that probably financed, um, you know, you have rates are only up uh, just over 1% in the last year or so, right? When you look back 12 months, a lot of it was beforehand. So anybody that's purchased in the last six months or so, um, they didn't see their interest rates, even if they just got straight floating or if they're getting caps, um, they didn't see their interest rates go up really at all. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Really, the brunt of it had been done. So that was something that we saw and uh, when doing our numbers out. But it's um, in hot markets, we're still seeing that cap rate comp compression, and especially on the B-class properties, which most people are looking for. And um, you know, you had a lot of people over since 2020, 2021, 2022, a lot of properties, um, those cap rates for C were getting really close to B. And that made it that investors were saying, hey, why am I even dealing with C-class when I can get better product, better tenants in the B-class? But um, you know, we're still seeing, I was looking at a deal that someone was sending me from Houston and it was like, uh, it was a portfolio of properties. And you know, their cap rate they're purchasing at is in uh, the mid, I think it was low, low fours, right? And their debt's definitely higher than that. So they're taking that chance. They're still going to do that. They're still having their debt more expensive than their cap rate, higher than their cap rate. And now what they have to do is they have to do enough renovations and they have to reposition that property to get it. So it is you know moving along with what they're doing with their business plan. So you still have people doing what they were doing years back. I just think that a lot of sellers, even multifamily, are sitting on the sidelines just as they are with home single families. Uh, because they are seeing if interest rates are going to come down. If interest rates are start coming down or there's a pause, um, that's when I think you're going to have more sellers putting products properties out because now they're going to have investors most likely more aggressive on buying than they are now because there's usually, when they do a pause, uh, the rates aren't going higher, right? They usually start on the way going down historically. So I think you're going to have that. And I think sellers are waiting for that to happen to put their properties up because now you might have investors uh, that aren't really sharpening the pencil now. They might start sharpening it again like they were 2021. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things of that that I kind of want, wanted to um, you know elaborate a little bit more on. So you know we, we're in you know, the getting close to halfway through 2023. So we have, you know, anyone that was buying, you know, in mid 2020, you know, um, uh, you know, rate caps are, you know, basically all expired for those. So you have the people positioning that we're doing, you know, early pandemic, pre-pandemic or just beginning of it are kind of now starting to reposition that stuff. And obviously, you know, we have a little bit longer to see, you know, maybe end of 2024 is when we're really going to see this whole, let's just call it pandemic you know, bubble of properties have been acquired and done, you know, and everything that comes with it, I choose pandemic as the you know, period in time uh, that's easy for people to kind of pinpoint. 
but so like, you know, that they're really going to maybe start having a, you know, a bigger supply of inventory. But let's say we're looking back, um, you know, a little bit more historical because, you know, a lot of syndicators, at least in the space, most of these things, they, you know, have some type of, you know, five years is kind of a typical, you know, run out. When you look at a prospectus, they're looking saying, hey, here's five years, here are we going to reposition, sell, completely refinance, or whatever we're doing is, you know, what you see a lot of. So we're kind of getting into that realm of saying, okay, well, the people that were doing 2018, 2019, are they going to just start saying, maybe we're going to get into some, you know, bridge debt stuff for some refi to wait for that? potential sale when we can, you know, now we're going to sell and have this capital and we don't want to buy into a severely compressed cap rate market, uh, or are they just going to ride this stuff out and then maybe try to reposition rents higher to make up for that, you know, increased holding costs of these things. That's kind of, you know, the part that I've been really curious to see because, you know, it's a, it's, it's a time thing, you know, we don't know until that kind of stuff happens as to when that's going to happen. Because again, you know, like you said, Granted, you know, the huge amount of cap rate compression kind of came in, you know, the end of 2021 and 2022 and the past year or so, you know, like you said, 1% rate increase isn't going ish, isn't really going to, you know, drastically change anything with the cap rates. You know, they're compressed. They're not as compressed. They're, they compress a little bit more, but not, you know, a ton. But now we're going to start seeing a lot of other stuff come in. You're going to see those, um, you know, those rate locks start expiring and then you're really going to see the screws start to get put in. So where do you see kind of the inventory for people that are kind of getting up on that five, six year mark with their syndications come into play in the next few years? And then also, you know, what do you think that that eventual, you know, you know, again, sharpening of the pencils is going to happen. Is that going to have a dramatic effect? You know, if we see rates continue to increase just because you got a good deal on the property, is it just going to be basically the same deal that we had now as far as what cap rates look like? Or do you think there's going to be some repositioning and changes to the market that would fundamentally open things up for some more money and better deals to be made? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, like you were saying, I mean, if we purchase like the property we're, we're selling right now, we purchased in June or July of 2020. So if people had purchased three to five years before where we are now, um, they're, they probably did well in their properties. I mean, we're going to do, we're going to beat our expectations to investors. And it's going to be something that um, where if you had people that are in within that window, like you were saying, purchasing the last two years, that's going to be a little tighter for them. But we had so much cap rate compression at the end of 2020, 2021, that anybody through that we haven't we haven't gone back anywhere near down uh, price wise uh, in these in these hot markets that people are looking at. Maybe you know when you're in markets that are more cash flow markets that don't have as much appreciation, um, you know that don't have as much uh, population or job growth, they're going to see more of a hit. But in the hot markets throughout um, the southeast, southwest, uh, Sun Belt, um, we didn't really we're not really seeing the the. Uh, too much of an expansion on the cap rates because people are planning on the long term for multifamily, especially now we have to throw in one more thing, which is the inflation, which uh, just went under 5% um, of what they say. So, I mean, so honestly, it's probably in the high single digits when you really look at everything, but it's that's something that's still playing a part role into where investors want to put money. But like you were saying, with people that have probably purchased in the last two years and, uh, you know, two or three years, um, that rent increase is going to be or I'm sorry, with the interest rate increase is going to be it's going to be something they're going to have to work out with their lender. And there's going to, have to be a number of different avenues. The property that we bought in Dallas was purchased in like 2017. So those sellers did really well. Right. 
renovated a lot of the exterior of the property, left a lot of the interiors for us to come through um, and kind of fulfill and finish the whole um, repositioning project. So for them, they could have sold, uh, I mean, they could sell last year, they could have sold this year, and it doesn't matter to them because uh, the percentage difference in returns is minimal, right? They still did very well for their investors. And those type of properties won't be a problem with people coming in and saying, hey, um, you know, we can just sell it outright. We don't have to worry about refinancing it. In the last two years, um, this might be something where they're saying, listen, uh, we want to refinance the property. We're not to, you know, maybe the property's even dropped in value, but now that our debt is coming up and it's going to be very expensive um, to uh, refinance if we have to go back out to our investors and get capital calls so we can refinance it. Um, but I think you have a lot of people that are probably just kind of kicking the can down the road and might uh, go into some product that might give them five years, you know, five years of something fixed. And then at that point, they have to refinance. And at that point, they probably think that, okay, at this at this point, uh, no matter what happens over the next year or two in the economy, we're going to have, you know, we're going to be in a much better space five years down the road. And I think a lot of syndicators are like that. The problem is getting to the refinance, because at this point, uh, that can be very difficult if you purchase wrong. I mean, we've heard about uh, some, you know, some... Uh, Bridge lenders already foreclosing on properties that were purchased in areas that were, you know, less ideal. That's right. You know what I mean? Low C areas, higher crime. These aren't the places where you're really going to drive values. You know what I mean? Um, it's people that bought in good C plus, B class, and above areas are the ones that really are going to see, saw the rent increases, saw the stable occupancy, um, exactly what lenders are looking for when they're going to refinance a property. But um, you know, it's it's difficult to go through your whole business plan on 150 units or something in in 18 months, right? Yeah. And so that's to answer your question. I mean, I think that's where we're going to be at. Yeah. So, and that's you know, a good point. You know, the people that are getting in trouble, or probably, and and I would imagine the people that are getting in trouble on the you know C ish and below ones are probably people like unlike the people that you were talking about in Tampa, don't have an economy of scale around that that property class to where you can say, okay, well, you know, we've kind of cornered the market on this demographic of you know our renter profile and you know we have that economy of scale to support that you know the fluctuations you know of of things being able to balance out this one's not doing so great we have you know low holding costs on this one it helps you know bridge everything we're supposed to if that's kind of you know all of your eggs in that one basket then you're getting in trouble with that but also kind of looking back you know people that bought so well you know in 16 17 18 19 beginning of 20 um, you know, obviously investors want to have a return of their basis of capital, you know, while real estate investors are very happy with cash flow and very long-term cash flow, uh, you know, not everyone wants to be in a, in a syndication and syndicators don't want to be in a position for, you know, in perpetuity. So, you know, there is an impetus and sometimes a legal impetus for you to exit and return capital to your investors. But again, with the compressions of cap rates and people seeing market instability, long-term cash flow has become a lot more attractive to investors. Do you see kind of, you know, we've covered the current of the current status of the market. Do you see any maybe changes to, you know, more of the traditional structures of these syndications to where maybe syndicators are going to be coming out with different products to say, hey, you know, let's look at more long-term cash flow. Let's look out instead of that kind of five-year horizon. Let's look at a 10, 15-year window of something and, you know, stretch this out. Um, and granted, you know, there isn't, you know, tax, there's taxes is a big reason for this of, you know, depreciated, um, accelerated depreciation, cost seg and everything like that. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, while cash flow is great, 
you know, getting hammered on taxes way down the road isn't ideal either. But again, do you see that changing or is it just going to be kind of a lot of changing within that central metric unless something changes with the way that depreciation can be captured and cost segregation and things like that are done um, to change some of those, uh, you know, kind of exit horizons that people look at? Uh, that's a great question. I think where we are now, people that bought in the last couple of years are going to be pushing out that investment horizon if they haven't made the value for their investors. Um, I think those are going to be ones that, you know, when we put out an, uh, an investment offering, it's you know, five to seven years, right? And the last three or four properties we've done have been done just around three years, right? So that's just how the market was, right? But you're still telling investors it's going to be five to seven years. And I think they're going to get closer to that if they bought it in the last year to two years for most properties. There'll be some, we bought one at the beginning of 2022 that's doing fantastic. One of the, the best performing properties we have. And we bought pretty much right around what you'd call like the height of the market. Um, so, you know, there's good deals in all all more uh, parts of the market cycle. But um, I think, you know, most indicators really avoid going too long on the holds. And this is something I've learned uh, since being involved with syndications, probably six or seven years uh, from LP side extensively, and then also on the GP side for the last six or seven years. It's it's something where they just, they I think, you know, you have it where the fees are really generated for syndicators on the sale. On the refinance as well, but most of the time it's on the sale is where they're really generating fees. And also the shorter amount of time that they take your money, um, the higher they're going to be able to tell you, hey, IRR is this, and or we did you know 1.9x uh, equity multiple in uh, you know two or three and a half years or something, whatever it was, um, it just looks a lot more appetizing to investors when you're showing showing off all of your track record to people it's it's less sexy to say hey we doubled money in you know six years right which sounds great for most investors but in the syndication world especially people and investors that have been involved with it since say 2019 or 2020 have uh, done extremely well on properties and i mean unless it was somehow oddly mismanaged <laughs> i mean yeah. you 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 couldn't lose money you know what i mean um so that's that's something that i think these holds are going to get a little longer um, because uh, I think we're going to restart rent increase, like I said, in 2024, but they're not going to be anything like what they were. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, so investment horizon, I think for people that uh, weren't able to really fulfill their business plan in this short period of time before interest rates started resetting and increasing so rapidly. And um, I think going forward, you have a lot of syndicators that are going to keep on telling their investors that five to seven year window, which is pretty typical in the industry. Yeah. And and again, I didn't really think that that was, you know, asking the question, you know, just was kind yeah. of in the back of my mind, at least coming from the the tax and investment world that I live in. Oh. I, you know, I don't, I didn't see that changing just for the simple fact of, you know, you, you can't, you know, unless you're basically building the entire thing back up, you get kind of one depreciation schedule. <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't get to say, Hey, we get to redepreciate the whole property. It's like, well, did you rebuild it from the ground up? No. Okay. Well, you know, now you're, now your tax benefit and the, you know, the, the actual rate of return, you know, your actualized rate of return after taxes and everything for the investor is going to start going down, even if it is cash flowing very well, just because you don't get some of those tax benefits passed through. So, Again, I didn't think the question, the answer is going to be different, but you never know unless you ask. Uh, with everything else changing, you know, I didn't know what was changing, and we have an expert, so I figured I would, I would flip <laughs> the question. Um, you know, again, kind of, you know, I think we've covered, you know, a good segment of, you know, what drives in from the single family into the current state of the market and the future. 
Uh, but I always like to kind of put it out to my guests if there's anything that we haven't necessarily covered yet, because while, you know, I'm sure we could sit here and talk for hours about about this stuff, we have, a, you know, maybe another 10 minutes or so to kind of chat, um, you know, some things that you find, you know, particularly interesting about the markets uh, that we're in, or some things that you think maybe are under, I mean, obviously, without giving away uh, <laughs> any insights that uh, might prevent you from making money, but just some, you know, maybe interesting anecdotes about what we're seeing right now, and maybe where you think things are going to go, whether that's with, um, you know, financing issues that people are going to run into, whether it's, uh, you know, inventory issues that are going to come about with, you know, just like inventory constriction is a problem for people, having too much out there is going to start driving costs down, which might also cause, you know, just because something's selling cheap doesn't mean it's good for everyone for it to be cheap. Um, so maybe kind of expand on that a little bit of kind of what your thoughts are, um, you know, personally and anecdotally about what's going on. So we've kind of adjusted our investing strategy over the last 24 months, um, as I previously mentioned, into more of a B minus and above type asset class. Um, and the reason mainly for that is not that there's anything wrong. I owned C-class properties for uh, the first 15 or 16 years of my investing career. But the thing, though, is that uh, when there's any type of, let's say, blimp, right, and Anytime you use a job as a tenancy, the C-class tenants are ones that get hit first, right? Minimal in savings. Um, see all these um, stats that come out saying over, less than $1,000 in savings and all this type of stuff. And what, what it shows is that it's a very, that tenant is, you know, they're, they're hit first. And that is the properties that are affected first, right? Those are landlords that now have to go back out. When we had a lot of COVID money that dried up at the end of 2020, 2022, uh, that's something where we saw on our C-class assets, those are the ones that were mainly affected the worst. And on B-class, you didn't even notice it, right? Because they're not as focused or backed by government money during those programs. Um, they had solid jobs. So for us changing around our, our kind of a strategy is that um, really changing around for better properties, better tenants, better areas, and um, kind of getting out of the C and into the B. And I think if you look at what else I'm seeing for other people adjusting strategy, I haven't seen it as much. I've seen people that have kind of taken this tack over the last two or three years uh, in the sense of mainly because of cap rates were very similar. So let me buy a better property if it's kind of paying the same, you know what I mean, for returns on cap rate on them. Um, but I haven't seen too much of a change from a lot of investors, but I've seen a lot less deal flow. And it's most likely because you have a lot of sellers that are on the sidelines, um, I think, but also because a lot of deals aren't penciling. And I think that uh, syndicators, uh, they are kind of feeling the heat. They're seeing other people getting into hot water. Maybe they have other deals that are in hot water that they're spending more time on managing than acquiring. And um, so I think, uh, and then also you have a lot of investors. You know, we spoke to uh, spoke to a lot of potential investors that are like, hey, you know, we're kind of sitting out 2023, um, which I kind of think is the wrong thing to do if you see a deal at pencils or you see a deal that works and you want to be a part of it. Um, there's nothing wrong with buying a property that's discounted. Um, it's kind of a problem, I think, if you're waiting for it to get discounted even more, because yeah. at some point someone's going to purchase it. Like for our C-class property, they were selling at a four cap. There's someone that came along and I would never buy it for that price, but there's someone that came along that sees the value there and they're purchasing it. So I, I like watching other, see what other people are doing, how they're adjusting their strategies, but how we have is just going into better properties and that will protect us going to whatever happens with this downturn. If we are through it or if we're just beginning it, whatever it might be, 
uh, having better tenants that are paying your rent, credit tenants that are paying rent that you're paying out to your investors um, is always a is always a good thing. And um, I see that some invest some you know some groups are just really most groups are really sitting on the sidelines and um, kind of sitting out a lot of this until they see kind of where everything unfolds. Yeah, and that's that's always a tough one too because you know if you if you wait too long then you you miss the boat. No one ever actually knows when that boat's going to pull into harbor. But that's true. Um, you know, it's the big thing that I always like to really expound on this podcast is educate yourself. You know, you don't know what's gonna you don't know what you don't know unless you're out there trying to learn it. Uh, and one way is to do it is to talk to people like yourself, talk to people that are actually doing this stuff because you know you can read all you want on Forbes and Bloomberg and you know, go to your local RIA every once in a while. But the more research you do, you know, it's like you said, in the past few years, it was almost, you know, again, nothing's 100%, but it was hard to lose money in the past two years yeah. doing almost anything in real estate. Um, you know, you, I've, I've seen it personally in a whole bunch of different areas is that you could throw it against the wall and things were sticking. But now we're seeing things change. We're seeing money get much harder to get. We're seeing inventories drop. We're seeing, you know, some cracks start to show. And that's when you need to do more research. Um, it goes with anything, any market. You always need to do that. So I think we really well covered it. I, I really appreciate yeah. your knowledge on this stuff. Um, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, learned some stuff with regards to how you kind of look at that and and why people are kind of looking at it from the perspective of the syndicator world, because I deal so much on just kind of looking at the, you know, finalized product, you know, reading through a PPM or a prospectus. I don't really give the chance to, you know, look at the people that are doing it and understanding why they put that into there. I can, you know, read it and say, okay, this makes sense. Okay. X, Y, or Z this. Okay. looks good. Um, but again, I really do appreciate your time. So if people want to get in touch with you, or if you have, um, you know, deals that are open and currently funding, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what you have going on and how people can reach you. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, so our firm, Harborside Partners, you can reach us at harborsidepartners.com. Um, I have a podcast there as well. Um, they come, we have a YouTube channel. We have a lot of information. If you're interested in learning more about uh, passively investing into real estate, uh, we also have a lot of uh, resources for actively investing. Uh, mainly, we focus on multifamily investing, larger properties, as we spoke about on this podcast. But um, yeah, we also we have a free passive investing guide. And you can find all that information and all the links and everything, resources at harborsidepartners.com. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Charles. I really appreciated your time today. This has been another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. And thanks for being Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.